This is Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes for Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We will begin today with the Angelus. So, Bishop, would you mind leading us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail, Hail Mary, Mary, full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend, celebrates grandparents as he talks about Saints Joachim and Anne, the parents of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the grandparents of Jesus. Then it's on to the dignity of the human person, regardless of their stage in life. Bishop then answers a range of questions submitted by listeners, including whether or not pets go to heaven and his most favorite memories of St. John Paul II. If you'd like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to episode three of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our Bishop of the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes. Thank you for being here again. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be with you. And today we celebrate a feast in the church. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Yes, today is the feast of Saints Joachim and Anne, the parents of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the grandparents of Jesus. So today is a great day to remember our grandparents, to thank God for them, to pray for them, whether they're living or deceased. Um, grandparents are so important in our lives. So today is really a feast of grandparents. And really, it's kind of an amazing thing. Something we don't often think about is that Jesus had grandparents. Right. We can think about maybe he knew them, you know, maybe they were there in Nazareth. You know, there's nothing in the scriptures, but that does not everything that happened is recorded right. in the scriptures. Can you tell us a little bit about your grandparents? Because I feel like grandparents are so important that we need to uh, recognize their role that they play in our lives, whether they are with us still or they have gone before us yes my father's parents lived in mahanoy city where i was born actually coal regions of pennsylvania very simple people he was the my grandfather was a coal miner uh -huh. so many people were there yeah i remember them growing up we would visit a lot uh 
would go home to, they would always talk about going home. Home was Mahanoy City, this little town in the coal regions. Uh-huh. I lived there for about a year, my first year of life, but then I was raised in Lebanon. Then my mother's mother lived with us as I grew up and had a profound influence on my life. She was Irish descent. She came and lived with us in Lebanon because of her health. She couldn't take care of herself anymore. She had very bad arthritis, but a woman who prayed all day. She loved to pray novenas and the rosary. She was just such, and she was Irish descent. She shared the faith. I loved her so much. She died when I was um, between my seventh and eighth grade that summer. She died on July 4th, 1970. Hmm. Her husband, my grandfather, uh, Carl, her name was Sarah Dacus. And her husband, with Carl Dacus, was an immigrant from Greece. So it was a Greek-Irish uh, marriage. I never knew him because he died before I was born, but I learned a lot about him. And actually, I was the first one in the family to ever go back to Greece hmm. since he left in the early 1900s. And I found the relatives when I went over there. Really? So um, my middle name is Carl after him, Kyriakos in Greek. Uh-huh. So yeah, I think grandparents... Um, I had such good grandparents, and um, yeah, I remember them with a lot of affection. I think a lot of times we see grandparents and their relationship with their grandchildren, and maybe the faith kind of skipped a generation, and maybe the kids didn't necessarily carry it on and aren't necessarily raising the children in the faith, and the grandparents feel a responsibility to do that, to fill that gap and to, to be a good model of the faith. Uh, why do you think that that is happening? So, a lot of times, it's not across the board everywhere, but uh, why do you think that might skip a generation sometimes? And how can grandparents be supportive of a grandchild's faith? That's a good question. I, when I was a pastor of a parish, I saw a number of children who, who their being raised in the faith was being done by the grandparents, not yeah. the parents. Um, and I was so grateful to those grandparents. But I think they probably grew up in a generation which was more open to the faith, perhaps those of the age of, well, of course, we look at different generations. I think of my grandparents, they, they grew up at, you know, during World War II, you know, or the Depression, the Great Depression, and then World War II. So, I mean, their life wasn't easy, but faith was really important at that time. The mm-hmm. faith was strong. Through the decades, um, it's been a little more difficult to, to maintain that kind of strong faith in some more recent generations. But I also think there is something about as people get older, perhaps they get wiser, and they also realize what's most important in life. Um, so again, these are general comments. I mean, every family's different, but I think often we can learn so much from our grandparents. Sure. Do you ever feel like as a bishop, you are kind of a spiritual grandfather that there's almost you uh, are a father to all these priests in a way, uh, as well as I know you refer to him as brother priests also, but in some ways, is, is that a, an accurate kind of uh, analogy that we can make? No, I feel younger than that, Kyle. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not age-wise, but, no, but more spiritually. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, in a way, the priests are not only my brothers, but my sons. Uh-huh. In, in some of the, the rite of ordination, you speak of the bishop speaks to the priest as his sons. Um, so in a sense, I think you're right. That's a good image. I never thought of it before, though. Um, you know, it was interesting. It was Pope Francis last month who, when he made the new cardinals, talked about them as grandfathers. But, you know, I think 
some kids don't get the experience of their grandparents. I think um, because of maybe they live too far away or things like this. But when there are opportunities for children to really get to know their grandparents, it could be such a powerful force for good in their lives. Of course, if their grandparents are are good in their yeah. living their lives and faith. Well, and I feel like that's definitely something, uh, some of a, a modern thing with our increased ability to travel and job opportunities coming up across the country or across the world. We see families splitting up, and so we don't necessarily have these relationships where, you know, especially hundreds of years ago, where you would have grown up with your grandparents and these multi-generational homes even, not not even to mention neighborhoods or towns. What do you think the downsides are of the splitting of our geographical locations of our families? Yeah, I don't think it's a positive thing. Um, I mean, I think back, I, I knew my my aunts and uncles and cousins. I mean, the extended family was really important. Every holiday we would be together. Actually, in my first year of life, we all lived together. We lived in the home with my grandparents. And not only with my grandparents, there were my mom's brothers and sisters and their spouses and kids. We were all in the same house. Yeah. You know, people didn't have money to all have their own homes. So now that eventually they did. And, you know, when everyone got jobs and moved away, but then we still stayed very close. And I think we see that in some families today where mm-hmm. cousins are really almost like brothers and sisters. That's how it was for me. My cousin, my first cousins, they're like brothers and sisters to me. Yeah. Um, but I think there's less of that nowadays, probably because of what you said, the mobility and all that. But I, there is something about that extended family. You see it in some of our different cultures, too, where that's more important than others. Also, cultures that really respect the elderly, grandparents and all those, which, you know, and I think that's really important. Pope talks about this quite a bit, and I think that's really important for us to to continue to love and respect and honor those who are our elders, mm-hmm. not just grandparents, but elderly people. And not see them as in any way a burden or something like that. No. Well, I think it's perfect that you brought that up because on the feast of St. Joachim and Anne, we're also celebrating a big uh, celebration in our area with St. Anne. We'll talk about that in just a little bit here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. This is Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes for Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're going to get to some of your questions here in just a moment. Before we do, though, we're celebrating not only the Feast of Saints Joachim and Anne, the parents of Mary, the grandparents of Jesus, uh, but also this marks the 50th anniversary of St. Anne's Retirement Home, which uh, you will be celebrating also today. Yes, uh, I love going to St. Anne's. This is a very important institution, community in our diocese. Um, and to celebrate 50 years, a half century, so many people who have um, lived the last years of their life there. Um, strong support from our local Catholic community. But what I'm really happy about is how the mission is growing. In the past couple of years, we've expanded. Now we have a special uh, part of St. We now call it St. Anne's Communities. Mm-hmm. So now we have another building next to Bishop Lores High School. It's called St. Anne's at Grace Point. And that's especially, that's, I forget how many people, but I think maybe 30 or 40 people can live there. Nice apartments for the elderly. 
And then also, mo more recently than that even, within the past year, we just built a new facility at Victory Knoll in Huntington. Yeah. I think this, to see this mission of the church expanding is great, and St. Anne's continues to do such a good job. And, and having that Catholic environment and daily mass and, um, you know, priest chaplain and excellent uh, medical care, I think um, this is really good for the church. Well, you mentioned the importance of the respect for the elderly, especially when that declines how much we lose in our value within our families and just respect for in general. And this kind of gets back to the pro-life message. A lot of times when people say pro-life, that becomes synonymous with protecting the unborn, which is definitely an important part of being pro-life, but it's not the only part of being pro-life. Uh, can you comment a little bit on the consistent life ethic and what it means to be pro-life as a Catholic? Right. It's, um, you know, there's threats to life and the dignity of life at the beginning and at the end in our culture. There are still strong pressures uh, to legalize physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, um, and I think we continue to resist those pressures. There are a few states where it's legal, but not only in the political and ethical realm, but also even in our own personal lives, our own relationships with people who are elderly. I think it's really important that we, we really show that kind of respect, especially for people who, you know, maybe have different difficulties, physical or mental challenges that come sometimes at the end of the last years when people are in their twilight years, but they are no less human. Mm -hmm. They are, they, they need maybe particular special help. That's why even in our churches, <clears throat> it's important that they be accessible for people who have various disabilities, whether they're young or old, often this can become when people get older, um, maybe when eyesight begins to fail, that we have special materials or hearing becomes more challenging. You know, there's different challenges that come in those latter years. And also to recognize too, inclus being inclusive of the elderly, not only making sure things are accessible in our parishes, but also making sure we have activities for our senior citizens. Mm -hmm. that activities that they can enjoy and they can contribute to the good of the parish. When we talk about the being pro-life and we talk about the beginning of life and we want to be consistent throughout the life, but then there's also those end-of-life issues. Can you speak to some of the end-of-life issues that come up whenever we talk about being pro-life, about respect for those that are dying or, or maybe not dying? And they right. Well, I think one of the things that you see is people who are promoting things like physician-assisted suicide, or they'll use th uh, other terminology like dying with dignity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not dignity. Or withholding things like nutrition and hydration from people who maybe, maybe even are in a terminal condition. But, but no, we don't believe that people should be starved to death. Right. Um, but you, you see these different things. It comes from the culture of death around us. And as you mentioned, it's there at the beginning of life with the temptation, the threat of abortion. But it's at the end of life with the threat of euthanasia. But they're both direct killing of innocent human life, which is always and everywhere wrong. Mm -hmm. That every human person is created in the image and likeness of God. And so, therefore, they deserve 
our, our respect and our protection. So we worry sometimes, especially about those who, who want to, um, you know, euthanasia. You know, there's various ways that euthanasia can be committed. It's outlawed in most of our states, but there are some states like Oregon where it is legal to take, for example, um, a dosage of drugs to to kill oneself. Mm-hmm. And then there's that's a slippery slope, too, because you have people who, um, if society considers them a burden, it's cheaper if they were dead right. than to take care of them. I mean, this materialism, this it's what Pope Francis calls a throwaway culture. Mm-hmm. And it's throwaway when it comes to human life. Whereas, you know, the Catholic Church stands totally against that. But I think here in the state of Indiana, we've been very fortunate. There was some int- uh, legislation introduced. I don't know if it was legislation or if it was regulation that was introduced about a year ago. And a lot of physicians, including a lot of our Catholic physicians, testified right. against allowing these kinds of things and were successful. But we still have to remain vigilant because there is this movement. And some who would say, well, we don't want someone to have to suffer still. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, they don't have the understanding that we have of suffering where suffering can be redemptive. Yeah. We believe in palliative care, helping people, you know, to relieve people's pain. But we don't kill people. Right. You know, that's the difference. In dealing with our elderly, I think we see two very different recent examples in our Catholic Church, specifically amongst our recent popes, of how they reacted differently. We see St. Pope John Paul II, who lived his life as Pope right up until the last second, even while dealing with some disabilities and some uh, struggles. And then we see a very different example in Pope Benedict XVI, who decided to step down from the papacy and when he seems to be still doing fairly healthy. Yeah. So what can we learn from these two different popes and the example they set for living out mission and living out the vocation that they were giving in old age? Wow, they're both great examples. I mean, St. John Paul II, I mean, his suffering was there for the whole world to see. As he became weaker, and he was losing his ability even to speak, Mm -hmm. I mean, when you looked at him, you could see the pain, you could see the struggle. I remember that one time near the end of his life where he appeared at the window of his apartment to address the crowd down below in St. Peter's Square at the Angelus. And he wanted to speak a message, and he couldn't get the words out. Mm-hmm. And he was, like, drooling. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like your heart was just touched by seeing. I mean, he wanted to teach and to lead until the end, and he couldn't. And so that was a – I think that inspired so many people. I mean, our hearts went out to him. But he taught us how to live, but he also taught us how to die. Mm. You know, and it was there for the whole world to see. Pope Benedict, on the other hand, gives us another witness. He decided, I mean, he discerned in his prayer that he didn't have the strength to continue to lead the church. And he decided to to step down, as you mentioned, to retire early, to resign the papacy. That took a lot of humility. Yeah. And, you know, even though his mind was sharp, he was experiencing a weakening that he felt that at that time the church needed a pope who would have the strength that he did not have to lead. So again, they discerned differently, but both were legitimate 
in their decisions. And I think Pope Benedict in a, is kind of like a grandfatherly type. Uh-huh. His life of prayer now, his simplicity, his I think he's still an inspiration. Um, and then, you know, Pope Francis is no spring chicken. He's like, <laughs> is he 80 or 81? I forget. Yeah. And I mean... Pope Francis, I mean, he's still in, I mean, he's in very good health. I think he has some issues, sciatica and things, where he has some pain. But he's very sharp, and he's still very, very active. So we have these different examples. I I think each of these popes of, um, I mean, men of great faith, who I think teach all of us about the importance and the dignity and the value of the life of the elderly. Yeah. And I think seeing the diversity in how they react in situations, knowing that they're such prayerful and holy men guided by the Holy Spirit, to see that there's different ways to live out our vocation uh, all the way up until death, that we can see different ways that God could use us, either in the public or in the private. To Yeah. It's like right here in our diocese. I know so many seniors in our diocese, for example, some who are still very might be elderly, but still very physically active uh-huh. and doing working in the church, working in this, working in that, very, very involved, able to drive around and do a lot of things. They're still, they're doing so much good for the church. But equally, I know elderly people who are not able to get around, who some are homebound, some are living in nursing homes, and yet they are doing as important a mission as those of us who are active, if they're living their life of prayer and offering up their sufferings to the Lord as a sacrifice for the good of his people, for the salvation of the, of, of the world. Everyone has to know that they are important to the life of the church. I think sometimes when I've visited some people who are up in years living in nursing homes or not able to get to church, they spend a lot of time praying. They, and they'll often say, Bishop, I'm praying for you. Mm-hmm. And I just think to myself, God only knows, you know, their prayers, how efficacious they are, how much good they're doing for the for the church. Um, so, yeah, so this is a day to celebrate all these people. Yeah, and a reminder to be praying for you, Bishop. Uh, all of the listeners encourage them to do so. Special celebration and uh, definitely want to congratulate St. Anne's Retirement Home for their 50th anniversary. And also we celebrate... Saints Joachim and Anne and all of our grandparents today. When we come back, we will be answering questions that have been submitted by listeners. If you would like to submit your questions, you can do that at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And we will be answering questions that have been submitted here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes on Redeemer Radio. This is Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with the Bishop of the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend, Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be with you. And thank you for offering to answer questions submitted by our listeners. We have several of them today that were submitted anonymously, which you can are free to do. The first one, actually, back in our very first episode, the question was asked, the difference between a diocese and an archdiocese. Slightly different today, what is the difference between a bishop and an archbishop? Okay, that's easy. Well, um, a bishop is the shepherd of a diocese. The archbishop is the shepherd or leader of an archdiocese. And those who were listening to that prior episode, an archdiocese is the diocese 
uh, the principal diocese of a ecclesiastical province. So, for example, we're in the province of Indianapolis. So the archdiocese of Indianapolis is led by an archbishop. And the other dioceses of Indiana are called suffragan dioceses. Hmm. So, and they're led, they're dioceses led by bishops, not archbishops. So when a priest or a bishop gets appointed to an archdiocese, do they immediately become an archbishop? Or do you become an archbishop first and then get assigned to an archdiocese? No, you get assigned to the archdiocese first, uh -huh. and then you're installed as archbishop. Or ordained, because if it's a priest, uh -huh. you know, he's ordained a bishop. Because a bishop on the sacramental level, there's no difference between a bishop and an archbishop. Okay. As a matter of fact, on the sacramental level, there's no difference between a bishop and the pope. The pope hmm. is a the bishop of Rome. But in... Areas of responsibility, of course, an archbishop has a few more responsibilities, not significant, than a bishop in the sense that he's the metropolitan archbishop. So there's a certain level of, I guess you would call it, not primacy, uh, first among equals, I guess you could say, among the bishops of the province. Okay. So, for example, when the bishops of Indiana meet, he'll chair the meetings. Mm -hmm. And if, a, if an archbishop would ever get transferred to a regular diocese, would he be downgraded or would he still be an archbishop? I don't know that I've ever heard that happen. It must have. The only time I know of this is, and although it wasn't a uh, reduction, is we had a bishop of the Diocese of Fort Wayne before it was the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. The bishop of Fort Wayne was an archbishop, even though this was just a diocese. That yeah. was Archbishop John Knoll. Right. They don't do that anymore. He was, because he was so prominent and he did so much for the church in the United States through our Sunday visitor, he was given the honorary title of archbishop. Now, I don't know of that ever happening. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it ever happens today. Huh. It was very unusual. Well, I know that there was a, a sense of relief amongst a lot of us whenever the new Archbishop of Indy was announced. We were all glad that it wasn't you getting transferred. Do you ever think about being transferred? No, and I was very glad I wasn't transferred too. I love serving here. No, I'm happy. I'm happy as Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend. But you were transferred once from Pennsylvania, Harrisburg to here. Yeah, I mean, you, I do that in, in obedience. Uh -huh. You know, you go where you're needed. I mean, I'm never going to say no to the Pope. Yeah. But at the same time, if I have a choice, I, I, I want to stay here. Yeah. Another question we have from an anonymous listener said, how do you feel about pets and do they go to heaven? <laughs> That's an interesting question to ask me because I'm allergic to animals. Are you really? I am. <laughs> Since I was a kid, I had asthma. Uh -huh. uh, now, it doesn't bother me much now. It depends on. You know, like cats would still bother me, horses. So I'm not a good one to ask about pets <laughs> because they can send me to the hospital. They did when I was a kid. <laughs> I would get an asthma attack. Really? So we couldn't have pets. No. Goldfish or anything? Goldfish, yes. Turtles. Yeah? Turtles. I had some turtles. I had goldfish. Did you? And it, so I like reptiles uh -huh. the best as yeah. pets. <laughs> did you catch the turtles yourself or did you get we them from a pet them. store? We bought them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did catch some too when we'd go out. But, but no, I don't think we were allowed to keep those as pets. Uh, the ones we bought, we kept. Yeah. What about the question of do your pets go to heaven? You know, 
That's an interesting question. They don't have immortal souls like human beings do. Uh, I've seen different theologians have different opinions on that. Some hmm. say no. Church, I don't think, teaches on it. Some who think that they do uh, postulate that since God, you know, there will be a new heavens and a new earth, that the pets will also be somehow live again. I don't know that there's any revelation yeah. on that. I'm curious about this next question. It comes from an anonymous listener. Do you go to class reunions? Wow. You know what? I have been to a few. And it's nice because when I have been, I've, I've celebrated mass for my class. I graduated okay. from 1970. This is high school, I think. Is that what they're talking about? Yeah, that's the this only was one any I've class Yeah. Well, my I graduated in 1975 from Lebanon Catholic High School in mm -hmm. Lebanon, Pennsylvania. So I've been back to a few reunions. We didn't have a 40th. Huh. No one organized it, I guess. <laughs> um, but I think the last one I went to was probably the 30th because I do remember being at a reunion once as bishop and having mass for the class. So I think that was at my 30th reunion. So I do enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a lot of good friends from high school. I stay in touch with a few of them. It's a little hard though, because I go back and you might've had some of the listeners might have this experience of not recognizing people because they've changed so much. Yeah. So that's a little challenging. <laughs> and I notice that the guys age a lot more than the girls, <laughs> yes. you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed those who go to reunions, but I think they're a lot of fun. What kind of reaction do you get going to a class reunion as a bishop, or maybe even going back a little bit when you were a priest going yeah. to a class oh, reunion? It's funny. I mean, they're, they're a little awkward. Like, should I call him Kevin? Right. Or should I call him Bishop? Uh -huh. You know, uh, I, I get both, to be honest. Yeah. But I think for some, it was a little awkward. The uh, But I like the idea that, that we do gather, and they like it too, that we gather together for mass, mm -hmm. and then we have the reunion. So... There's a certain, um, you know, they still see me as their high school friend, so they they see me as Kevin. Uh -huh. But at the same time, they say, "Wow, you know, he's he's the bishop." And uh, so I think it might be for some of them a little awkward, but for those that I'm closer to, that I've stayed in touch with, that's not awkward. Is there any awkwardness? being that your life is just very different from your average classmate. And maybe you'll see this in the diocese too, when talking with somebody like, well, as much as we do have in common, there's also a lot that we don't have in common because our lifestyles are just so different. Yeah. You know what the most challenging thing for me is those who've left the church, those who are still active in the church among my classmates. It's very friendly, very natural, you uh -huh. know, and they're happy and all that. But it can be a little challenging with those who've left the church where, you know, it's important that that I relate with them in a very friendly way. But it hurts me, too. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, wow, I remember them in high school and they were living their faith and, and now they're not. Or someone who's gone to a evangelical church. I remember at one of my reunions and I was trying to work during the reunion at getting him back. Uh, you know, and things you, like you that. You were trying to work oh, on yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's so, probably working on trying to get you to convert. Nah, he was kind of like, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, it was it was awkward. I, I mean, it was a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, that's just the way life is, though. You'll see that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, when we come back, we will have some more questions from our listeners submitted. You can always submit those at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You're listening to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes on Redeemer Radio. 
This is Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, here to answer questions that you have submitted via our website, RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Feel free to ask any question and we'll answer them here on the show. And one of the questions that we have came from an anonymous listener who said, who is your favorite saint and why? I have so many great saints that I look up to, but I probably could narrow it down to two. First is the one I chose as my confirmation name, St. John the Apostle. Mm-hmm. And I, I do have special devotion to St. John. Uh, I love his gospel. It's, you know, St. John is always represented in art by the eagle because it's said that his theology and his gospel kind of soars above the rest. Yeah. I mean, John's gospel and his letters are magnificent and the book of Revelation as well that he wrote. But I think I chose him when I was confirmed because of his being the beloved disciple. And I wanted to be Jesus's close friend. Hmm. So I've always felt that kind of special love for St. John. But I would say the other favorite saint would be John Paul II. He's my hero. He's the one who formed me as a priest. I would go over and listen to his papal audiences, go to his masses. So many times I met him a number of times, served mass for him. I just saw how holy he was. He was everything. He represented like my ideals of what a priest should be. And then now as a bishop too. His courage, his um, everything about him, I admired. And um, so I often uh, pray for through uh, the intercession of St. John Paul II. Do you think it's typical for our 7th, 8th graders to be thinking so deeply about their confirmation saint? I know some just pick like, this is my friend's name, and so I'm going to go by Peter. Or, yeah, and then probably some more are looking more deeply into it. Uh, how are you putting so much thought into it that you wanted to be Jesus' close friend? Yeah, you know, thinking back to that, I remember I had a really good religion teacher, a religious sister who was just so joyful. I mean, we talk about the joy of the gospel. She manifested joy of the gospel and she got us really into our faith. That's the first time I can remember that I started thinking about God might be calling me to be a priest. Hmm. So I think when we were getting prepared for confirmation, back then confirmation preparation was different. You had to do a lot of memorizing. I mean, they gave us like 45 questions and we had to memorize every answer. And sometimes those answers were a couple sentences long. Uh It was all very rote memorization. So I remember that, but she made it fun too. And I remember that, you know, I I, I actually don't remember how she dealt with us choosing the saints, but I do remember that that's what I thought at the time. And I think our young people today, when I talk to them about their confirmation names, I think some do put a lot of thought into it. Some don't. They'll just say, okay, I love music. So I'm going to choose St. Cecilia, or I love sports, so I'm going to choose St. Sebastian. Been there, done that. Yeah. yeah. And that's okay. you know. But I like when they delve into that saint's life, St. Cecilia or St. Sebastian, yeah. so that they learn more than that, well, she's the patron saint of music, or Sebastian's the patron saint of athletes. You know, Learn about their martyrdom. Yeah. Learn about the courage of their faith. So I'll encourage them. I think a lot of our catechists do that. They, they really make them research the life and maybe get them to think a little bit more. Well, what are the virtues of that saint that I want to imitate? Well, do you have a favorite passage from St. John the Evangelist or uh, maybe a chapter? I love would... the priestly, the, the uh, farewell discourse of Jesus. 
those chapters towards the end of the, I'm trying to remember, beginning with chapter 13 to 17. Um, so it's several chapters, uh-huh. but it's really so deep. It, you know, it begins with Jesus washing the feet, but then his, his speech, so to speak, his farewell talk to the disciples. And it includes his priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples for when they leave him. I mean, there's just so much rich in those passages. And you'll be f- familiar where you know he prays, Father, consecrate them in the truth. He'll say things like to them, like, they will hate you as mm. they hated me. You'll be persecuted as I was persecuted. I mean, Jesus is speaking from his heart. You can just feel his love for the apostles in that discourse. So I hear that being addressed to me when I pray with those those chapters. But there's a lot of deep theology in it, too, where you kind of also glimpse the relationship of Jesus with the Father and also with the Holy Spirit, because it's in that farewell discourse that he speaks a lot about sending them the Holy Spirit, that he won't leave them orphans, that he'll give them the spirit of truth who will guide them into all truth. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, when you read, I mean, you could spend, you know, a half hour just on a few verses. And when he says that, it seems like he's almost referring to two different things. The, I will be with you always, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I've kind of interpreted that as, I will be with you always in the Eucharist, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit, like these two different ways that we can get the, the love of God infused into us. Is that accurate? I think it's both. I think Jesus remains with us through his spirit, but he also remains with us in the in the in all the sacraments, but especially the Eucharist, because that's mm-hmm. his substantial presence. So I think it's not either or. I think it's both and. Well, I'm going to take that as a personal challenge to read John 13 through 17. I'll encourage other people to do the same. And then you also mentioned St. John Paul II. When do you think you realized or did you ever realize in his lifetime this man is going to be a saint yes i i i knew that right away i mean i should say right away but um very early i would say i went to rome in 79 so he had only been pope for a year Uh and i think the first time i served mass for him was in 1980 yeah it was the feast of corpus christi 1980 But just seeing him, watching him on TV, seeing him at, I could see he was very holy. And his teaching was so remarkable. And then how he led the church with such love, such courage. I saw the virtues. I thought he was a heroic sanctity very early on. I never doubted that he would become a saint and i felt the same way about mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. you know and when i met her a number of times you, you could feel you were in the presence of a saint that she was close to jesus so close to jesus as i felt you know john paul was so close to jesus so those two i think were living saints so i was not at all surprised the first time i sat down and met with you you gave me a copy of jason everett's book St. John Paul the Great. The Five Loaves. Yeah. Do you have a favorite story, either from that book or from his life that you remember? You know, there's so many things. Um, When I was 
there in Rome as a student, I saw his, you know, this was when communism was alive in Eastern Europe. So I saw how he was the moral and spiritual inspiration for the solidarity labor movement in Poland and how this was eventually going to lead to the fall of the Iron Curtain and um, the Soviet Union, even the dissolution. Uh, he was the spiritual force, you know, and um, I think probably the most traumatic thing for me was when he was shot. Hmm. And I mean, we had such high hopes, so much excitement as young seminarians. And I'll never forget that day and running down to St. Peter's Square and, um, you know, his blood was there on the ground. Um, and then we prayed in that square that night not knowing if he was going to live or die. He was in surgery, you know. I think when I heard his words the following Sunday from his hospital bed, and his first words he said was, I forgive the man who shot me, and I'm praying for the women who were shot with me. I just, you know, that was such a moving event. I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the, in the square, but it just showed here he was, the love and mercy that came out right away. And then when he went and visited the man who shot him in the prison, that famous image of him sitting there with Aliashka. So I think that's kind of like indelibly in my brain about John Paul as that example of mercy. On a personal level, in my own times that I spoke with him, I think what moved me the most was his prayer. I mean, I felt like when I was a, served as a deacon for him a couple times, I felt he was in another world when he was praying, like he was having some kind of mystical experience. He'd have his eyes closed and there'd be like sounds coming out that I felt he was in some kind of deep communion with God when he prayed. Like I never wanted to interrupt him in his prayer. He had that, uh, he was a mystic, I think. Yeah. He would do that, right? Lose track of time in oh, prayer, yeah. like go into prayer and all of a sudden. Yeah. You'd have it. to kind of shake him out of it. I remember once before Mass, he was there kneeling before getting vested. I tell this story sometimes at confirmation. I, I was one of the servers, and there were all these, I mean, probably tens of thousands of people waiting. It was a Mass in St. Peter's Square waiting outside. He knelt down to pray before he put the vestments on. And there were just a few of us in the sacristy with him. And like five minutes went by, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It was time for Mass, and he wasn't moving. And I wasn't like going to go over right. and like nudge him. <laughs> yeah. uh, the MC eventually did. And he got his vestments on and began the Mass, you know. But, but there he got, he would get lost in prayer. Yeah. Um, when he would be in, when he was visiting the United States, I heard about this Cardinal Keeler in Baltimore. Like, they tried to keep him away from the chapel because he wouldn't get enough sleep. He'd spend so much time in prayer in the chapel, and they wanted to make sure he got enough rest. Yeah. So, he loved the Eucharist. He was he loved the Eucharist. You recommended John 13 through 17? Yes. To, for John the Evangelist. Would you recommend anything to read about either something that St. Pope John Paul II wrote or something that somebody wrote about him? Well, I think the best biography is George Weigel's Witness to Hope. Okay. But that's very long. I mean, it's, what, 800 pages or something. And there's a second part of it for his last year. So it's really a two-volume set. But if you really want to get into details of Pope John Paul's life, because I didn't even mention his life before being Pope, yeah. which is amazing. His okay. life in Vadovica and then during World War II and early life as a priest and all he went through. But I think that's kind of like the best biography. And as far as St. John Paul II's own writings, I mean, I have two 
full shelves, big shelves of his writings. Um, there's his encyclicals, his apostolic exhortations. I think if you want to really get to the mind of John Paul, the best thing to read is his first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, The Redeemer of Man. That's his first encyclical. I guess it was in 1978 or 79. And it kind of lays out the whole theme of his vision for the church and his papacy. Yeah. Now, he did it his first year as Pope, but I think you see it lived out all through. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop Rhodes. We are going to be back next week with another episode of Truth and Charity, where we will answer more of your questions. You can submit those at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. Join us for another episode of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes on Wednesday at noon with an encore presentation on Saturday at 11 a.m. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program. If you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or call 260-436-9598.